Welcome back to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me again. Here we are at episode five, focusing on racism, and I'm so excited that we are at our panel on education today. As always, we're brought to you by NPT Education. Check us out at www.npteducation.com. We are here to work with your school or your district to help all things go just a little bit better, and we'd love to hear from you. You know, on this podcast over the last four episodes, I've really taken a personal journey. And one thing that has brought me comfort is that many people in America, and especially many white people in America, have been on this same journey at the same time as me and and on this podcast. And, you know, we've been looking at what is systemic racism, what is my role in it, and what can I do now to make things better? And now that we're up to episode five, it is time to bring it directly back to education. And I always knew that when it was time to bring this back directly to education, I would need help. I could not do that on my own. So I am so proud of the panel of educators that I'm about to introduce you to. Um, I'm going to go through each of their biographies pretty quickly, and then I will roll tape on the actual discussion, which is just amazing. First is Laura Lee Cabrera. She's a district literacy instructional specialist for the Springfield Public Schools. She began her career teaching as a fourth and fifth grade transitional bilingual educational teacher. She's also an adjunct professor currently at Westfield State University in the School of Education. She's amazing. She's won many awards. She's been recognized. She has many things published. She's presented, including the ILA's Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy, Heinemann, many, many different conferences. She's a Pioneer Valley Teacher of Excellence Award winner in 2018. She's a member of the Heinemann Fellows Inaugural Class in 2014. She's a member of the Cornerstone Literacy, Inc. Literacy Fellows 2010 to 2015, and she's a member of the Andover Bread Loaf Teacher Network since 2013. She's just incredible, as you will hear shortly. Next up is Eddie Polk. He's been a public school educator for 24 years and a Grinspoot Award winner in 2013. He spent six years as a sixth grade social, te- social studies teacher in the Springfield Public Schools and then the past 18 years as a social studies and AP U.S. history teacher at East Long Meadow High School. He has served on several committees, including the East Long Meadow High School Equity Committee, the District Equity Committee, and he was the NEAS Committee Co-Chair for Instruction. He designed and developed curriculum for the African American Studies course at ELHS and has been the instructor there since 2011 of that class. He also founded the High School uh, Multicultural Club, and then he has organized, facilitated, and presented several events on race equity, including the Changing the Chain Symposium on Race and Equity and a panel discussion on race and equity and leadership. Again, an amazing um, addition to this panel, Eddie Polk. Next up is Ryan McCollum. He's a good friend of mine. You're going to hear him referring to me as Timmy. He is founder and owner of RMC Political Strategies. He also owns a text message technology company. He's the only non-educator that I have on the panel today, but I thought he was a really important voice because education was very important in his life. 
He does a lot of consulting work in politics and many other forums. He's on a lot of different boards, and I thought it was really important to have the voice of a non-educator here as well. He's also worked on local, state, and presidential campaigns. He sits on several boards of organizations aimed at racial and social justice, fighting urban violence, and providing daycare and parenting tools to those in need. He's also very active on social media, speaking loudly against racism. He's a great addition. Next up is Miranda Cavanaugh. She teaches seventh grade English at Birchland Park in East Longmeadow. She graduated, for, she's a fantastic English teacher, I should say. She graduated from Smith College for both her undergrad and her master's degrees. She's also taught in Wendell, New Salem, Russell, the Bement School as both a dorm parent, teacher, and coach. She taught for seven years at New Leadership Charter School in Springfield, and she was on the second year founding team of the Veritas Charter School in Springfield. She also works as a quiz writer and a question editor for New Zelly. You're going to love the things she says. She's such a practical educator and really boils it right down to what can be done. And last but far from least is Valenti Tulloch. He has his MA and his LSWA, and he is now a dean of students in the Southbridge Public Schools. He's also an educational consultant, and he's the founder of the Academic Leadership Association. He works diligently with young men in elementary schools on leadership and personal advocacy. And I will say, you're going to hear him calling me coach. That's because many, many years ago, he played high school basketball for me. He is an incredible addition to this, and it's great to have a male that's working in elementary schools, working with young men in those schools, and he brings a really unique perspective to our conversation. So without further ado, it's time to start hearing from these incredible educators as we try to figure out what we can do about all of this back in our schools. Okay, welcome everybody to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee for our panel discussion. We are here, as I've talked about, to discuss racism and how schools can deal with this and how schools can help remedy this and how schools can help change the overall system. I'm gonna start by asking each one of our panelists who you just heard me introduce a little bit, but just to introduce themselves and their race as well, as well as any other identifying factors they'd like to include. So, so I'll start, I'm Tim. I'll be the facilitator today and I'm a white male. My name is uh, Eddie Pope, you call me Eddie. And I identify as a black cisgender male and I use the pronouns he, him, his. And I do like to usually in these conversations acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, being biracial, I have a white mother and a black father. I'm, I fully make sure I, I, I understand and comprehend my privileges navigating through white spaces as a light skinned black male versus some of my uh, darker skinned folks that have to navigate these spaces otherwise. So I like to make that clear in the beginning. Thank you. I'm Miranda Kavanaugh. I'm a white female. Valenti Tulloch, senior, I'm a black male. Lori Lee Cabrera, I am a Dominican, Puerto Rican, Haitian, um, Afro-Caribbean female. And I'm Ryan McCollum, I am a black male. Uh, like Eddie, I am biracial um, and so my father is African-American and my mother is Irish. All right, well, thank you all so much for joining us. We're so excited for this moment. So what has brought us to this moment is, as I've said, I've had a journey on this podcast with four podcasts focused on 
sort of texts about racism and a personal self-reflection along the way. So that brings us to today. Now what? Many people in America have clearly awoken in new ways to our systemic racism. And the question today is what can educators, schools, and districts do to prepare students to change the system and to be anti-racist? Um, I want to acknowledge that I think we're going to sort of talk about all this and we're going to be hitting on three big sort of change levers. One is curriculum, of course, I think will come up. Uh, the second one would be pedagogy and instruction, how we teach. Um, and the third would certainly be systems that can be created outside the classroom, be it clubs, committees, student-led groups, all sorts of creative ideas. That said, I want to let the conversation sort of flow within the topics and just see where we head in terms of curriculum, pedagogy, and outside the classroom. So the first thing I want to ask about is just conversations in schools. Um, we're all at different levels and different jobs, but you know, part of the first step here is to just get students talking about systemic racism. So how do we do that? How do we get students talking about this? And when we do, what is, it important, what is important for educators to remember? What do we need to know as we try to start these conversations? Coach, if you don't mind, I've been, um, I, I can jump right in. Um, first, I want to say I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've told you that a couple of times, but um, and I've been listening in, um, um, particularly to your most recent ones. You know, and I think we can even start off by just saying um, the importance of, um, as we all know, the majority of our teachers are white, um, and just acknowledging our um implicit bias like understanding like your privilege and um acknowledging that first yeah and that's one of the questions that i have so that's good you've already brought it in which is uh you're basically saying we as educators need to acknowledge those things correct yes sir all right who can jump who else wants to jump in So, so I'll jump in now. Off the head, Ryan. I, I mean, and, and I'm the only non-educator here. But it, to your question, Timmy, I imagine, you know, speaking about current events will obviously bring up, um, you know, this issue of systematic racism. Um, whether that's, and, and I leave it to you all, which which subject teacher that would be, if it's a social studies teacher or geography, et cetera. But also, you know, I just listened to your podcast on um, Coates. And so an English teacher like Miranda should be teaching African-American literature that brings up systematic racism. Um, and so it, so it shouldn't just be, in my opinion, the history teacher talking about slavery and that's it, right? And so it needs to um, be in every subject throughout, throughout the student's um, uh, lifetime. Yeah, for sure. The diversity of our curriculum definitely has to, we have to update our curriculums, no doubt about it. Um, to Valenti's point too, with biases, you know, it makes me think the place I usually start when I have these conversations with students or even colleagues is we have to be having the same conversation. We have to be using the same language. So part of, um, and I know we need to get to those action steps, but part of that is you can't skip the awareness steps Right, you can't accept, accept, uh, skip the analysis steps, the accountability steps, uh, and the allyship and the actions. That you can't skip those things. They may have to happen simultaneously, 
And so just by beginning with understanding what racism is, right, the fact that it's individualized prejudice plus institutional, right, racist structures that create that, right, it's the power play. And also understanding how we move toward liberation. Bettina Love has a great book out and she uses the term um, survival, uh, the educational survival complex. And part of that is, and the book's title is, we want to do more than just survive. And it's all about abolitionist teaching. So we really have to break the mindset that has been created in systemic racist institutions such as schools and begin to understand the languages, raise the awareness, understand our role. As Valenti said, 82% of the teachers in the country are white. So they have to understand their role in this structure and begin to unlearn some of the things that they understand and, and re reset their understanding and then begin to take those action steps. So there's a big difference between equality and equity. And once you can uh, create institutional equity, now you can start moving towards liberation or abolitionist education. Um, oh, sorry, Laura Lee, you wanna go ahead? Um, no, I was just thinking about a lot of times when we want to make change, we ponder how is the best way to get started? What is the first thing I do? So we, we tend to stop at that step. And this is something that happens every single day in every one of the contexts that we exist in, right? So it happens in our families, it happens in school, it happens between the adults in the school, and it happens between children and adults in the school. So I think understanding that and calling out those instances is a great way to start the conversation and then people are able to realize you know what oh i didn't realize when i said this this way that this is what was happening so if we're if our goal is to educate sometimes the first step is let's find out where this begins for example um we have many conversations with um, with teachers in our district and every time anyone starts the conversation or starts a sentence with these kids or these families, therefore, we can't let those things happen, right? So how do we disrupt that? And disrupting is the first step because it automatically stops the person in their tracks and will hopefully give you an opportunity to educate and reflect. I think in addition to that, we also need to be willing to not necessarily get it right. Like we're gonna go into these conversations with the best of intentions and it doesn't matter to what extent we may have planned the language that we wanna use or what we think our teaching points are gonna be. Like I need to own my own biases and I need to own my own privilege. And in the midst of that, I'm not always gonna be necessarily saying things in the right way or effectively communicating what I may mean, but I think it's really important that we're still willing to take the risk to have conversations about race, even if it's imperfect, and that we're still like able to to say, I apologize that what I said came out that way, that is not what I meant, and really model for kids the imperfection of those conversations along the way. Yeah, so all of those things, you guys fit together really well, right? Like everything that was just said was of equal importance in the sort of building up of a better system. 
So let, let's start. The way I heard it was I heard a lot about uh, adult to adult thinking, talking, calling each other out, um, awakening and understanding in the adult to adult world. Um, and then I also heard some stuff about in the adult to kid world. But let's, let's try to break it down smaller before we go to the background, which is probably the most important part, frankly. But let's say I'm just one teacher and I'm in a school that's not doing a good job with this stuff and that isn't on the cusp of doing a good job, right? The, the administration doesn't support it. The conversation's very primal and it's, it's just beginning. Um, Ryan, you talked about look at curriculum or look at current events. Uh, Miranda, you just mentioned like being okay, getting comfortable as, a, as an educator to make mistakes in it. So just, just one teacher, one classroom, what can that teacher do to, to sort of improve this summer how they will deliver curriculum and instruction next year? Go ahead, Valenti. I, I was just going to say, um, I think there's literature out there that um, some educators can get their hands on that can um, kind of expand their knowledge um, on, you know, white fragility, as um, Colt was, was mentioning with that book. Um, I think as administrators, we can, um, you know, whether it's funding, I, I would even try to purchase books for the staff. But if you're looking at the individual teacher, just educating yourself around this. And once you uh, acknowledge, again, the implicit bias, realize what steps you can take to improve your instruction and, and your dealings with the kids, whether it's building relationships with those students, um, not lowering your expectations and understanding when you're doing that. Because the worst thing I want to, um, the, the biggest fear, one of the fears I have with this going forward is we're going to lower our expectations for individual students because of their race, right? Instead of um, building these students up and building momentum in that way and then going from there. Good. Who's up? Morley, go ahead. Um, I think that as an individual teacher, without the support of your staff, one of the first things you can do is really take a critical look at what you already have in place. And by a critical look is asking yourself, what materials do I have? Who is represented in these materials? How am I presenting these materials to students? And what is my role in this that I'm trying to disrupt, right? There are a lot of resources out there for teachers. I have a, a colleague um, who's working on a set of questions. And the questions are as simple as some of the ones that I mentioned there, like whose voices and perspectives are experienced or centered in this particular unit? Whose voices or perspectives are marginalized in this unit? What voice, how are these voices represented? So things like that, there are many places you can get lists like that and those are easier to manage as a one person and can have a huge impact on the day-to-day -day of, um, of the work that happens in your classroom. And there's also um, opportunities for you to, um, to use what you already have in a more critical way. We know that budgets are always something that we're fighting against. So it might not be right now as a first step where I'm gonna purchase a new curriculum or I'm gonna buy something new or I'm gonna bring something new into the classroom. Um, there's this um, really popular hashtag, this disrupting text. So it's the current texts that are being used, 
how do you disrupt them? How do you start a conversation and look at it differently? Um, because I can use something that probably is not the best, but the conversation I have with students and when I bring them in and the questions I ask can lead to a lot more changes than me going out and buying a curriculum that already has these other embedded questions. Because then the students are part of the process and you get them used to thinking critically about the things that they're consuming in your classroom. Great, would anyone like to add to that? Sure, uh, you know, a lot of wonderful things there in terms of educating yourself. I think uh, one thing I tell people is diversify their social media feed. <laughs> you know, start following some different people and um, try to make sure you're not falling into the same um, patterns. Um, I would say also, uh, I agree with Laura Lee on review what you already are doing. I would look at that from a uh, curriculum content um, perspective, but I also would look at it as my established practices and norms too. Um, spend some time reflecting about those norms that you use in your classroom and, and are your students stakeholders in establishing those norms. We need to find ways to put, uh, to put students at the center of leadership. I know we, we formed the equity ambassadors at our, in our district uh, last year and they've been, I just got off a meeting with them and they're putting together a petition on curriculum change. So these students have agency that we need to make sure um, we validate and, and allow them to be able to realize their, their potential in this, in this fight, right? I would also, um, to Miranda's point about, and Laura Lee's point about disrupting, there are definitely resources out there that provide guidance into, into solutions, simple approaches that you can take for now until you become more comfortable with it. But um, I know one of the more common ones is to uh, name it, claim it, stop it, right? But posing questions is always good. When somebody says something that's not right, um, what do you mean by that? Or did, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, for, for me, I'm always, I, I tell my students, I don't teach the class the same way in any year. I'm already doing something different in, in my history classes where I'm incorporating a lot more of Howard Zinn's uh, material with my AP US history class. You know, my African American studies class, we do that deep dive, that's part of the curriculum. But in the other classes that I teach, what can I do to bring more of that into those classes? We also can look at the spaces that we're in. What are, what's on your walls in your classrooms, right? Do we have the same, you know, the Albert Einstein picture, which is great, you know, Albert's great. But, you know, do we have other images? Are they walking through halls where they feel like this is their space too? Is it a shared space? So I think those are all things that educators can do. And by the way, podcasts and symposiums and things like this are all over the place right now. So if you can't find one, you can organize a book discussion. You know, you can organize a weekly article breakdown. Ha having these conversations out loud is very helpful, by the way, than just sitting and reading them to yourselves. So I think teachers and educators could, could do all of those things before even getting into next year. Um, and then we could talk about how systems can really start to build the capacity for change too. But those are my suggestions. Miranda or Ryan, did you want to add anything there? I just think, I mean, and it may go without saying, but I think the first step for any teacher, regardless of what the rest of the school climate is, really, I think, needs to be that self-reflection. And 
as like Valenti said, like it's so important to educate yourself and to be willing to look at resources and materials and hear different perspectives about what's happening. Before we deliver anything to kids, we need to be really mindful about the work that we're doing as adults and like what our end game is. Yeah, it's Ryan, did you want to add something? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I was going to say is, is, is people can do what you're doing, Timmy, and, and doing a deep reflective dive about their own, you know, implicit biases. And so if you don't know that you have white privilege, it's going to be hard for you to teach about white privilege or to teach about certain things without it addressing your own privilege inside. Uh, the other piece um, that folks can do is, is use outside speakers. Like I go into classrooms all the time. And so if you happen to be a white teacher and, and, and you can't speak to certain things, you, you can find somebody of color that can come into your classroom and would do it for free and, and work with you on what you, know, you, what you think they should be speaking about or what they want to speak about and, and go in there so that the children can see or the students can see somebody of color speaking to a topic that this teacher has been trying to teach them all, all along. So I just got to tell you, when I put this panel together, I knew it would be good. But the answer to that question was unbelievable. I took a page of notes on everything you guys just said, and you covered it from so many different angles. So we're always on this podcast trying to break down things so that it can be applicable to a teacher immediately. Um, and what you guys just went through was an incredible summary of so many ways that a teacher can improve their classroom in regards to this stuff right away, right away. Uh, and so... When we're done, I'm sure I'll do big takeaways, and I got a lot of big takeaways from that question for sure. Um, just related to that, I, I'll just mention, um, I've been reading on uh, the last week or two, Teaching Tolerance, the magazine, um, and realizing I should have been reading it a lot more along the way. Um, but one of the things they brought up, which I think is pertinent here, is a thing called school-based racial trauma. And they define this as a type of physical or emotional injury that uniquely impacts black and brown students in school spaces. Um, so they gave examples of an elementary school teacher that, you know, with the right intentions, had students in a, in a unit on slavery pick cotton, you know, within the classroom. And the author had been in that classroom and um, never realized until many years later how traumatic that experience was. Uh, the, the, the overuse or even the use of, of different racist images or videos that, you know, a teacher might think, oh, this is helping everybody see what was going on in the world and helping us analyze difficult stuff. But for the children of color, especially in the room, it's, it's, it's harmful. Uh, it's harmful. And, you know, a big example of that is slavery being really the only thing black children learn about in terms of their own history. And, you know, the article went on to say that, these are not often the results of bad intentions, but it doesn't matter because when people are hurt physically or emotionally, your intentions, it doesn't matter. You can't say, I didn't mean to do that. You, we're the educators. We have to realize what could happen. Um, so sort of linking from the, the question before this to the next one, and we'll start with you, Eddie. Um, how do schools, how can we sort of consciously focus on adopting an anti-racist framework in pedagogy while at the same time not, you know, making sure at the very, very, bare minimum that we're causing any school-based racial trauma. You know, how, do, how does the overall school start that process? Wow. Okay. So 
Yeah, that is definitely, it begins with some very hard conversations and then some action steps, right? So first thing I'm thinking of when you're describing that situation is, is microaggression activity, right? So um, intent versus impact. This, I mean, this almost needs to be first day of school assembly with each grade <laughs> and literally saying this is what these things are and educators as well. Um, microaggressions are broken down into micro assaults, micro insults, and micro invalidations. And they come in all sorts of you know, ways. And the way that I try to get in people to understand is imagine, and maybe some of you have seen this analogy on you know, YouTube or video or whatever, but mosquito bites, right? We're not even talking about the early childhood trauma that is disproportionately impacting black and brown communities that students are coming to school with. On top of that, they're facing these microaggression activities in their schools, in their classrooms, with their teachers, with their peers. And a lot of people don't understand that if you're facing a microaggression, one or two, one or two mosquito bites doesn't hurt. But if you're getting hundreds of mosquito bites a day, it's extremely painful. And so it's kind of this walk down empathy, various types of empathy, right? No one can ever know what it is to walk in a black woman's shoes unless you are a black woman, right? Um, you're not going to be able to do that. But we certainly can build the capacity to develop you know, different types of different forms of empathy to understand what somebody might be experiencing. So I think that conversation with people and that analogy of it may not seem like a big deal to you and your intent might not have been, you know, to harm, but that's what microaggressions do. And that's what incessant microaggressions do to, to students of color. So I would begin there. And then you need to build in programming that addresses this all year long. It can't be like Laura Lee said earlier, you can't just bring it up and then, okay, the rest of the school year goes on. And, you know, so last year, just as an example, uh, my African-American studies class, we, we pulled together and we formed a microaggression wall in which we put various microaggressive statements on the outside of the wall that are negative that you shouldn't say, and then comments that you would say on the inside of the wall. And even that drew some negativity. There was a lot of support, but then there's always people who don't understand, well, why is that a microaggression? And then that's when the conversations happen. And that's how we continue to learn. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking directly towards that, but as far as building the capacity in, in, in a school that doesn't tolerate these things, and by the way, I just wanted to, I thought of something else. When there is a microaggression or an offense to somebody, it has to be a public response in the same venue right so if it happened in the classroom it has to be addressed in the classroom with all the people that were there heard it in the first place if it was even something written on a desk in the hallway you know say a swastika was drawn on the desk in the hallway and several students may have seen it that day well there has to be a public acknowledgement because there are several people that may have been injured you don't know who was and who wasn't right so public public offense requires a public response um, so I think these are just practices that we can put in. Um, I, I guess some people might have some ideas about other structural, how do you build a capacity for this, but that's where I would begin. Laura Lee, could you add to that? I was thinking um, whenever you want this change to occur, and obviously this is a very lucky school to now have an, you know, a whole group of people who want to approach this. 
um, and not the scenario before where it's one teacher trying to figure it out. When you're looking at something whole school, you probably want to start with defining what it is that you want to do together and having everybody be part of that definition and plan and add those steps that you were talking about, Eddie, being part of putting those into place and then being part of keeping each other accountable for those steps that you're going to take, I think is critical. Our district is currently, um, currently just started um, doing some district-wide um, professional development on um, equity and being anti-racist. And um, it's, it's kind of a, a, it encompasses all of the different structures. So we started with um, downtown needs to be trained in this, needs to know what we're looking at, needs to know the steps. And then now it's in the school phase, right? Every school is part of creating their own definition of what they want to happen. Um, and then that's going to then teachers are going to take that on and, and put um, a system in place in their classrooms. So I think it just needs to be systematic in terms of how to, how to do this so that it's effective. Um, and everybody needs to be aware and be held accountable for what the, those action steps are. How about Valenti, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, just to, um, you know, second that we, our school district has a, um, a consultant who comes in and runs professional development periodically throughout the year on, on diversity, on cultural competence, and um, really just addresses a lot of the, um, you know, the, I say it again, but the, um, the bias and um, has ongoing conversations. So, um, you know, even does activities that, you know, focuses on our own experiences. And um, there was actually one, there was a, uh, and uh, it was an icebreaker, but we all lined up on this line and we all closed our, our eyes, all the educators. And she would read off things like how many grew up in a two parent household, how many um, educators grew up in a, um, you know, uh, receiving welfare or, or wh whatever it may be. And, um, you know, at the end of the activity, open your eyes and see um, kind of where your privilege stands. And I think those kind of activities are eye-opening and really kind of opens up a, the, um, a, a can of, um, or it really opens up an opportunity to really have these conversations with your counterparts. Miranda or Ryan, anything to add? I mean, I, as somebody who's not in education, but as somebody who's worked on policy at the state level on education, you know, to Laura Lee's point, you know, training all facets, whether it's be it's administration, principals, teachers, makes a lot of sense. But I would add that they should all be in the same room together as well. So if you just train downtown about their one thing, but what they're thinking about and what they want to mandate that teachers do, teachers can't do because of certain things that teachers, they wouldn't know because the teachers aren't in the room. And so making sure that folks are in the room, I know when we were writing policy, if we're writing policy about curriculum, we wanted teachers in the room to see if that made sense. Um, so I think, you know, the left hand has to know what the right hand's doing, especially if where, where, where you're actually trying to make the impact, which is in the classroom, 
um, the folks making those decisions, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir with you all, but the folks who are making those decisions need to know how it uh, applies in the classroom. I think what Lauralee was saying about the shared vision is so important. Um, Top-down change isn't necessarily something that I would say I have a lot of insight on in general, but I think if if there's a shared vision, then there's shared buy-in. And if there's shared buy-in, then it's much easier to enact some sort of a change. And so I think starting with the why would be really important. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons for um, my dive on this podcast and this sort of mini series within it is because the why is growing for so many people. It's It's in place right now. And so trying to figure out how to capture that why in schools and have it immediately affect change in schools, right? So I want to go back to something Valenti said real quick, which was the activity that you described with staff. Um, we have advisories at my middle school, and I'm able to plan a lot of the advisory activities that teachers do. And I once did an activity that when I set it up, I was really happy we were doing it, really proud of it. Uh, we watched a, you know, a famous video on YouTube, which was a gym teacher in a high school with a diverse class. Um, and he did what Valenti just said and lined them up. And he had like $100 on the other side. And every time they, um, every time he, he asked questions of privilege. And so the kids that had privilege got closer to the $100. And at the end, when he was done with his questions, he said, all right, go. And um, clearly the kids who had the most privilege they didn't have to be fast. They were 10 feet away from the $100 and they got it. And then we asked teachers to lead a conversation around privilege and what it means. And in my advisory, I thought it went really well. Overall, I thought it went really well. Um, and then I had an African-American female eighth grader in my advisory. And when we were done, everybody left and she stayed and she said, why did you do that, Mr. Allen? And I said, well, we're, we got to reflect on stuff like privilege and biases and, and understand each other better. And she said, all the white kids in this school, all they learned from that was that black kids only have one parent, was that black kids don't have as much money. You know, she, she, she saw it from this totally different angle. And she, instead of what I thought was, in my opinion, an awakening moment, she saw it as a further closing down moment. And she saw the activity as perpetuating stereotypes that already existed. Uh, so I never... I never knew. I never knew if she was right or I was right. Or, uh, but that's what can make this so hard. Any, any thoughts on that, which I just described? Yeah, I saw the same privilege video. And in your situation, yeah, that's, you run into those challenges. I think somebody here already mentioned, it, you know, it's a, it's a journey and we grow from yeah. that journey. Um, you know, and, and you had that conversation with that student. And um, I just think it's important. That's part of it as well, you know. Um, and that you, um, you know, I would say you said you, if you were right or she was right, I, I would say you both had things that you were looking at. She's definitely right because she's talking about her lived experience. Yeah. So you can't take that away, you know, you know, but at the same time, your intent was there, but the impact was this. So I, I just feel like that's just part of the growth. One of the things I do when I have conversations, I really start off talking about all the ways that I have privileges and I did not live a privileged life. Um, but I look at the fact that I'm 
I'm able-bodied. I don't have to think about, I, when I got up this morning, I don't have to consider how I was going to navigate spaces or get to my car or go to the store. And I don't have to think about any of that. I grew up economically disadvantaged, but I'm not that now. I identify with the sex that I was assigned at birth. So I'm not going to be worried about being bullied or targeted or look that funny if I go in a different bathroom than what people might expect, right? I, I speak, English is my own only language. And in this country, that's a, that's a privilege, right? So even as a person of color, I can acknowledge my privileges and I'm growing and learning in that journey as well. So I, I don't, that's how I look at it. We're going to make mistakes and it has to be okay. Um, and you just want to work to not make them again. Um, and that's, that's how I look at it. But that video, that, I remember that video, something important that he said was, first of all, they were older kids. They were, I think, in college. But he also said, that even the kids in the back of the line still had to run the race. And I, I can't remember if it was Ryan or Valenti, but somebody mentioned the fact that we can't lower the standards for students, right? We ha and we have to get, we have to close the gaps. We certainly have to build the capacity for them to access learning, but they also have to, they have to still try to run the race and overcome those obstacles. I see you smiling, Valenti. <laughs> no, listen, I, um, I appreciate that, but I think that, um, you know, one thing that was interesting was when I opened my eyes, um, two things happened, right? One thing is I looked around and the people who I thought were more privileged than others were closer to me than I expected. So that opened up a, um, an opportunity to have that conversation. Like, hey, like, tell me more about that. And also, this is a, a um, I'm kind of on the younger side, I guess, of, of being an administrator, but opening my eyes and realizing all I had to kind of navigate through to get where I was and you know seeing you know different teachers and uh ahead of me who had more privilege than I have and and really um like kind of just like reflecting on that reflecting on that as well for myself yeah well, yeah that's that, the, that's go ahead Eddie sorry I'm sorry I was just gonna say that's what is so good about what uh Laura Lee was saying too because when you take uh, when you look at this systemically, and you know we just ha we're in the process of an equity audit in our district as well, and you have quantitative and qualitative, you know, data information. You're going to have outliers, right? But disproportionately speaking, statistically speaking, right? Yes, maybe you thought in your situation that that was going to be different, but when we look at the totality of our districts in in the state and in, in the in the nation, we we see these consistent outcomes, and that's what we're trying to. That's what we're trying to address, right? Timmy, can Go I ahead, just- Go ahead, yeah. Um, just back to your, your acti the activity that you were mentioning, I think, I think it's really helpful to debrief different people's um, experiences when we choose what activities to do around this topic. Um, my colleague, we've done several of them and my colleagues have commented on how gentle I am or how good I am with words and letting people know that something might be wrong without them feeling defensive. Um, and they thought it was just this big compliment that I was receiving, right, in all of these activities. And what happens is it's a lot of years of having to study your language constantly and being really aware of how you address people when you are always the minority in every circumstance that you're in, right? Like this young lady that you were talking about. Um, 
the way I experience those activities are probably a little different than my colleagues experience these activities. So I'm gonna get something that's really different. And having the conversation afterwards, so not just with you after, but at getting different people's perspectives, I think will lead to a lot more learning and reflection than just the activity itself. Um, we, you know, you're vulnerable when you participate in these things and, and people um, are in different places, right? I'm, I am a minority part participating in an activity that's supposed to lead to people being anti-racist in a place where most people identify as not being racist. Um, and when they are confronted with um, how they're contributing to a colleague feeling a certain way, it's kind of like that girl. I mean, you were with the best of intention trying to do something and the girl's takeaway was you just told everybody that, you know, this and this and this is what I am. Yeah, and that's why it, it hit home so much for me. And that, to be honest with you, you know, that day over 600 kids in a suburb did that activity. Um, but that one girl, and I was close to that girl, so she was certainly comfortable um, to talk to me. But we haven't done it since. I've never repeated that lesson because I was so um, impacted by that side of it. Um, and clearly, I think what I'm learning here is I got to dive back into that thinking, not be, not be afraid of the discomfort and, and, and figure out sort of next steps rather than just not doing it, uh, which I appreciate. Um, I want to I wanna explore um, a little bit. Uh, oh, let me say in relation to what was just said also is another thing that schools I'm learning need to be very careful of is having all of this work that we've been describing fall on the teachers of color, um, which is another problem that takes hold. And uh, I'm sure some of you can speak to it, and I know that I'm reading about it and trying to understand it, but really what I think so many of us are waking up to is, I mean, everybody is going to need to work at this, but white people need to start working the hardest at this, um, and we should have been all along, but if we weren't, we now realize that. Um, so clearly... Schools have to develop ways for everybody to be working on this and not have it fall on just people of color. But that said, what about kids? You know, from my study of white fragility on this podcast, I learned so many skills that I didn't know how to combat white solidarity, right? How to point out small racist acts, how to call racism out every time I see it. Um, how to more successfully discuss racism with others. Um, is this stuff, school? you know, that, it was sort of a study of my own whiteness, right? And is this stuff schools should be teaching? Is this stuff schools should be working on um, with all kids, but especially with white kids? Is this something that we should be addressing? Timmy, I think um, definitely on the anti-racist side, right? And, and schools have proven that they can do it when it comes to anti-bullying, right? So there's a, always talking about don't bully, don't bully, and stand up to bullies and report bullying. And so why can't we do the same? I mean, being racist is bullying. Um, and so, you know, if, if European soccer leagues can be very anti-racist, 
why can't a, why can't a school setting? Um, and so pointing out racism even amongst white, um, you know, in a white solidarity uh, situation or setting where it's just white people and it's just white school children teaching teaching white school children to call out each other on racism seems like something that can be done. Anybody want to add? Um, I was just thinking um, about whose responsibility it is and who engages and who does. I think, um, I think it needs to be a shared responsibility and we need to understand how we react to the different people who are engaging us in this work. For one example, we talk about if I disrupt um, a racist comment, many times I'm viewed as the angry Latina, right? Because I'm an angry person. Um, versus the language that we choose to use with, um, with whites is they're just fragile, right? So we need to be cautious with, about their feelings. So if, it, if the responsibility falls just on people of color, then we're continuing to perpetuate that image of these are just these angry people who can't get over all of these years um, of being oppressed, right? And um, to talk about um, the other point of, um, sorry, Ryan, Ryan, I think it was you were commenting on, um, forget it. I forgot. Being anti-racist? Anti yes, about being anti-racist and if, um, and if we can do it or not, right? When we think about the research around brain, you know, uh, brain science, children who are living in these conditions where they are receiving microaggressions and being part of that daily cannot learn. They are put into situations where they can't physically really pay attention to what you're trying to teach them. So if we're trying to, if we're saying we want to teach all students and we want to um, be good teachers for all of our students and we don't address this, we are disproportionately disregarding a whole population of students, right? Off the bat. I can't learn because I am, I feel threatened and I am not in an environment where I feel welcomed. So it's not of can we do this? It's we need to do this. I think that's where the conversation is. We can do it. How are we going to do it now? Like what are the steps that we're going to take? We can't continue to not educate the children that we have in front of us all of the children that we have in front of us. Yeah, so that's such an interesting point that it's, it's about students feeling safe and then their brains being open to learning. Uh, but it's gonna be this exploration of whiteness is not something that's been a big public thing. It's not, it's not, it's, I, I think it's kind of a new thing that, you know, white fragility is now sold out and a lot of books are now sold out in a good way, but it's going to be interesting for schools to get this in fast. And, you know, I'll say this, like rightfully so a lot of you have talked about how it has to be shared purpose. We all have to like build this together. We all have to, you know, like Ryan said, like central office and leadership and teachers, everybody needs to be in the room. And I agree with all of that. But the problem is we have one day of PD before school starts. And then we have one hour of a faculty meeting a month, right? So there's, there's, there's how this in a perfect world would be built. 
And then there's, how are we going to build this? Because there's, there's no time to wait. Like we can't not be anti-racist in September, right? We can't set a goal of two years down the road from now, we'll be anti-racist. Um, so I think that's something that always stresses me out as well is I want to do the why, like Miranda said, I want to do the shared purpose. I want to build it together, but there's also no more time to wait. Uh, there's no more time to wait. So uh, that's going to be a trick that schools are going to have to work through as well. Um, all right, so I think we could probably talk about this for a very long time, but we're at about 45 minutes, and I want to give everybody a chance to sort of add anything um, or discuss anything that they haven't already brought up. Um, I'd like to ask one quick question before we go to sort of those closing thoughts or closing questions, but one other thing I've been wondering is it's so hard to have these discussions in schools while also not bringing up politics. Um, you know, in schools, we're told, do your very best to never talk about your own political views or your own political thoughts. Um, and I like to think that as kids get older, uh, and I'm sure Eddie can speak to this as a high school teacher, that um, that will come out more. But I don't know. But um, what do you think? Can, can schools do all of what we've been talking about while also not talking about politics in a way that teachers opinions come out is that possible or or is that part of the change that's going to need to take place is if we're going to have real conversations in schools we're going to have to be able to talk about politics in schools as well miranda seventh grade english what do you think um i mean i think what we're talking about isn't really opinions or political views we're talking about facts like we're talking about the facts that that our society isn't this perfect place that we wish that kids believed that it was and we're talking about the facts of racism which we haven't known how to talk about for a long time and i think it's hard to leave politics out the door i also think our kids are looking at us for what they're supposed to do like how are they supposed to interact with other people how are they supposed to have academic conversations how are they supposed to be questioning themselves and thinking about things and i think every time we we put something off we're just reinforcing this whole colorblind mentality that that keeps us stuck in the same place that we've been thank you ryan anything to add I mean, being the political consultant here, it, yeah. it, it's, it's impossible. Race, since the beginning of our country, is, is in bed with politics. And that's just what it is. And so if you're discussing with a seventh grader about the fact that they need to be anti-racist or they need to um, realize their white privilege, when they talk to their parents about what Mrs. Kavanaugh is talking to them about, you, you, you can very well have some very upset parents saying that you are, um, you know, indoctrinating them with liberal white guilt or whatever they want to say. So <clears throat> as much as we want to say that, you know, it's a fact that institutional racism exists, which we all know, um, there are people who think that institutional racism is a myth perpetuated by the left. And so, no, you can't. You can't separate it from politics. Now, you can you don't want to be in class saying Donald Trump's a racist. Um, 
that might be, you know, that might not be looked looked great upon as far as the administrators, but politics and race are hand in hand and they're, they're in bed together. Eddie, can you talk about it at the high school level? Sure. Um, I agree with what everybody said so far. I would just add, in addition to facts, like Miranda said, it's also morality. So you're teaching morality. And while race is a social construct, it certainly has been used in its entirety to politicize and create privilege and opportunity for the dominant demographic, the agent privileged groups. And you and I agree with Ryan that you can certainly talk about how it's politicized, which I do in my classes, especially the AFM studies class for sure. But we don't have we don't get into party agendas or individuals. Um, we keep it on you know talking about how you know talking about the politics of it in terms of how it impacts us, the civic effects of it. Right? Um, it's all intertwined. You can't get away from it. Um, but you certainly, yeah, you, I don't usually go down the road of particular party agendas or individuals, but we certainly talk about how it impacts us politically. One, I mean, one example um, uh, for sure is, um, you know, we, in, in AFAM studies is designed to have these conversations, but we will talk about even past campaigns, right, um, in, in, in the way which um, um, stereotypes, tropes, and dog whistle um, politics can be used to speak to certain populations. That's politics, but I'm not saying this person is doing that or that person is doing that now. So that's kind of how I navigate that at the high school, being very conscientious of my families in the community and, and where a lot of people's politics lie. Um, it's, it's a tricky task, but uh, you, ha you can't, I agree with Miranda, you, if to ignore it would be to perpetuate colorblind you know, ideas, and we can't do that. All right, so to close us off here, I was hoping that each one of you, you know, going back to our original goal, right? So, okay, now what? Many people in America have awoken in new ways to our systemic racism. What can educators, schools, and districts do to prepare students to change the system and be anti-racist, anti-racist? So. We've talked about this on many different levels. We've talked about some really tomorrow steps. We've talked about some big planning steps. Uh, and I'm, I'm as impressed as I thought I would be with the different angles you all come from. Uh, but before we finish off, what haven't we mentioned? What haven't you mentioned? What questions are you still grappling with? You know, if each of you could just sort of give one more final thought um, or story. Uh, I think that would be a good way to close us out. Is anybody willing to start us off? Valenti? Sure. So um, first I want to say, I noticed Ryan had a picture. I think that's Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali in the background. Can't hear you, Ryan. That would be great, but actually, no, it's uh, Timmy's in there. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, a one a uh, picture of uh, a guy with a shirt and tie on. It was the, and I was just looking at a picture just like that from my angle. So anyway, um, <laughs> legendary anyway. But um, no, I would just say, um, you know, I, I, I run a leadership pro a mentoring program in our schools that work with a lot of the at risk students. 
Um, and it takes the students who um, I put in quotations at risk because a lot of those students um, are black and brown students, right? But, um, you know, to change the overall outlook of how we view these students uh, was one of my main goals. So really changing their trajectory and, and making them feel like, you know, they can actually be great and, you know, speaking greatness into these students every day. We see them. Um, they wear shirts and ties throughout the week. Um, so really change, and that really makes them want to come to school. Um, and I say that to say, like, when I was in, so I grew up in a predominantly uh, white school district, um, and I, I didn't have a black teacher all through, all throughout my school, um, you know, experience. So, but I did have in fifth grade, I had a substitute teacher come in uh, and it was almost like she was sent from the heavens, right? Because I've never seen her before. She was, uh, she was about, I think she was in her mid twenties, uh, a black lady. And, um, you know, I was acting out in school in, in class. I was fooling around in the bag with these group of kids. Um, I had a do-rag on, my, my clothes are baggy, you know, but uh, she pulled me aside and she was like, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you even behaving this way? You're way too smart for this. You're way too intelligent. Um, you don't need to act like this. And I, and I, you know, and she kept like just talking, talking me up and making me feel like, man, like that's, this is the first time I had a conversation with a teacher about just on a personal level about how great I, and how, how great of a potential I have. Um, and I still remember that conversation to this day. And I think, you know, you know, making it, having an initiative to bring more black educators, black and brown educators into the school system um, who view our kids as to have the same potential as their counterparts is important. And to have a, make a concerted effort to have these conversations, whether you're black and brown or whether you're a white educator and, and uplifting our students on a daily basis, it can really, it, it changed the way I thought about myself, at least for the day. Um, so imagine if I was hearing that the, every day I went to school. So it can, you can have a great impact. I'm really glad you talked about that group you put together, Valenti, because it's great to follow you on Facebook and see the incredible work you're doing with those young kids, you know, and it's so, it's not normal, but it's so much more normal to see that kind of work done at middle school and high school level. So the days when you post and all those young men are wearing shirts and ties to school and they're just beaming in those pictures with you. Uh, it makes me proud uh, to know you. So great job with that. And I'm, I'm really glad you touched upon it. Uh, Laura Lee, could you go next? Um, so I always like to share a bit of my story. I am a first generation middle school, high school, college graduate, the first person in my family to be able to do that and um, grew up homeless for many years. Um, I lived in Springfield and went to Springfield Public Schools in elementary school, then moved back and forth to Puerto Rico and New York City for many years. So I share the story of a lot of our students in my district. Um, and I think representation matters. A lot of our students, um, and not only our students, a lot of the teachers that we have in the district that see a Latina um, up in central office on the third floor, see themselves represented and, and understand that there is space for them. And I just feel like education was what 
um, led me to be able to do all the things and to have a very different life than um, what a lot of people statistically expect from me. So this is why it's so critical that we get this right. Um, because we can change what students perceive their future reality will be. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ryan. Well, it's funny Valenti mentioned a picture. Um, and so I, I have a picture hanging in my living room and it's the Rockwell painting, um, The Problem We All Live With, which is Ruby Bridges walking into um, a school and she's escorted by US Marshals. And so when I step back and I look at this as in, with a political eye, um, we have to remember where black and brown people were back in the day when it came to getting education, right? Um, and especially, you know, what I wanted to really talk about was the school to prison pipeline. And do we need police officers in our schools? And if, we, if they are in our schools, what kind of powers should they have? Should they have arresting powers? There's, there's no more drugs in an inner city school than there is in a suburban school. And so if you have police in inner city schools, the kids with the drugs are gonna have arrest records and the kids in the suburban schools are not. And so we have to look at that. We have to look at not just with police in the schools, but how they over, you know, teachers and administrators over-discipline black children, especially black uh, girls. They get over-disciplined disproportionately more than anybody else. And so what does that mean? It means they go to school and they're worried about getting disciplined and they become, they don't like school. They're just trying not to get yelled at or they're getting expelled or they're getting suspended. And so they drop out. And so schools and education, you know, I mean, we always say it and it sounds like a, but it's the bedrock and it's the most, it's one of the most important things to a child's life and to a citizen's life. And that's why, you know, in politics, it's important because what we want to have is a society that we, we can all succeed in. And if, if they're already set up in schools that are not going to, that are automatically going to fail them for whatever reason it is, um, then we're going to have a worse society as a whole. And so I do think we need to look at police in our schools, how teachers and administrators are trained about how, how a black girl can do the same thing, have the same infraction, but get suspended when a white girl doesn't. Because um, those things are important in their long-lasting effects on all of us, all of the citizenry. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Miranda? I feel like I should have something really profound to say at this point, and I, I'm sorry that I don't. I think um, I'm reading the book White Kids right now, which is so fascinating, and it has me looking at where it is that we start to develop our ideas about race in a predominantly white and affluent community. And I think as a, as a white person, I need to be willing to continue asking so many questions of myself and holding my peer group accountable. And, um, and just being willing, I think, to continue to listen. And like Laura Lee was saying, the importance of having different voices presented in the classroom. I'm thinking about immediate action steps that I can put into place. And there are so many things that I can do better. And there are so many authors that we can read, not because we need to read a more diverse spectrum of authors, but because there are amazing works of literature out there that we just haven't touched on. Um, 
And I think really being mindful of including more perspectives is so important for me. I think that was pretty profound. So thank you, Miranda. <laughs> and Eddie, you're up. All right. So um, a couple of things. You asked a few questions, but and I'll be quick and succinct. Um, so, you know, you talked about the daunting task of actually trying to make change. And, uh, and it goes back to what I started with Tina Love and the idea that, you know, as we try to reform school systems, we end up trying to fix flawed systems. And that's just difficult. And so I think the, the best way to get out of the educational survival complex is really to just kind of go at it full bore in every aspect of what we do in schools, down to discipline, um, collecting and collecting data, analyzing data. Um, Laura Lee mentioned having a plan, and, and I would add to it, making it a multi-year plan. And I think you also mentioned monitoring your progress on those goals, setting those goals and sticking to it. It needs to be embedded in everything that we do. We didn't really get to talk much about hiring practices, but we definitely have to you know, re-envision how we post for jobs. And we got to create cultures that, uh, create a culture, excuse me, uh, an environment in which people want to come to. And then furthermore, you have to work to build in support systems to retain teachers of color once you do hire them. Um, just hiring them is not, it can't be a compliance thing. It has to be the support and, 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 and help them um, uh, help us make the changes that we need to make in our, in our systems as well. I would you know, reinforce or reiterate the, you know, be a conscientious disruptor um, I also, when you're talking about um, systems, when you talk about anti-black and you know uh, racist institutional systems, you're talking about 400 years of construction, 401 years of construction. That's a lot to dismantle, mm. but it has to be dismantled. And part of doing that is understanding how they were created. How do we become segregated by our, segregated by our zip codes? And Color of Law by Richard Rothstein is an incredible book that does what Michelle Alexander did with New Jim Crow breaks it down for you point by point and how we got to be so segregated by our zip codes. Income and wealth are very different things. And so the wealth gap and income gaps in this country, black people in this country own 5% of the wealth of white people, 5%. And income, it's only 60%. So we have to look at the disparities going to Ryan being, you know, working with, um, you know, uh, in politics and, 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 and other systems that it has to be a total collective effort in that sense. And I would just, you know, add that, um, I just thank you. I appreciate you, Timmy, because I've listened to your podcast and I'm just so encouraged, especially when we have a lot of our leaders in education are whites and white males, um, to hear somebody like yourself, um, reflecting in the way that you are and making yourself vulnerable the way that you do and inviting these conversations is encouraging for all of us. And I know it is daunting when you kind of look at the same handful of educators of color and kind of depend on them. And I get that, but I don't know how everybody else feels, but I just feel like I'm in that spot where, you know what, I just have to do it. Like, I just have to do it. If, if, if people are gonna put themselves out there and now's the moment, you know, I'm gonna do the best I can. I might, might not be able to do it all, but I'm gonna do the best I can in supporting leaders who are trying to make these changes. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And thank you all uh, so, so much for joining us. Um, that was about an hour. And I feel like we could go four more hours without skipping a beat. So I really, really appreciate all of you. Um, keep up all of your good work in the many different forums you're in. And uh, maybe we'll bring this back together in a few months into the school year and see if anybody's been finding new ways to make progress in, in their private endeavors. So thank you so much for joining me, everybody.
Well, if you are like me, and if I'm being fully honest, that panel discussion changed the way I see so many things and has given me so many ideas for what to do next at my school and in my career to promote social justice, to, to teach kids to be anti-racist, and just to start to chip away at a much faster pace at this system, this systemic racism that we are living within. You know, before this panel discussion, I really planned to record a wrap-up that would include big takeaways. But after having this conversation with the panel, I wouldn't dare do that. There were far too many good points and ideas for me to try to choose the few that were the most important. You know, as humans and maybe especially as white Americans, this deep dive into systemic racism is very personal. We're all determining our own next steps and how we can each impact this broken, broken system. And it's clear for me after leading this panel that as educators, it's the same thing. We're all in charge of figuring out our own next step, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a counselor, an administrator, any other role. Only you can decide your next step for your classroom, your student, or your school. It is clear that we must fight against systemic racism. It's clear that we can't accept just being not racist. We must be anti-racist. And it's clear, just listening to this panel, that there are many things that schools must do. So hopefully this panel opened up your eyes to new next steps that you can take. And now, frankly, it's just time to get to work. I know it's the summer, but planning and changing happens over the summer. Don't waste the next two months. That is my, that's going to be my mantra for myself. Don't waste the next two months. Schools have a lot to deal with right now as we try to reopen during the coronavirus, but just as important is how we take this head on now and we don't wait another second. We need to find ways to improve our schools, improve our classrooms, and most importantly, we need to figure out how we can fight racism in in ourselves and in our students. So I hope you enjoyed this panel discussion. As always, we're brought to you by NPT Education. I want to thank you so much for taking this journey with me. I've been saying all along on all five episodes, my goal is to no longer be a tourist when it comes to thinking about racism. Because I'm a white male in America, I have that privilege. I can think about it and then not think about it. And it doesn't directly impact my life minute to minute like it would if I were a black male. But I don't want to be a tourist anymore. I want to continue to think about this often and at all times. I, I don't want to come and go from the struggle. I just want to stay in the struggle. And I want to fight racism every day in any way that I can. And I hope from the last five episodes and especially from this episode, listening to such wonderful educators, you feel the same way. Go out there. Teach, lead, fight racism every day. And as always, thank you for joining me here on the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. You know we gotta change the game, just you and me.